You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence, sponsored by LifeRaft. I'm your host, Robert Ballew. And joining me today is Dr. Tristan Casey, Director of New View Safety. Dr. Casey, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's good because I'm usually playing in the health and safety space. So this is a new, a new topic for me. It's great. What are most organizations doing wrong when it comes to safety training? There's a whole lot of research we've been doing around why safety training is a bit different to your usual corporate training. Just to sort of go through a couple of those reasons, sometimes safety training can be mandatory rather than voluntary. You sort of have to do it for compliance reasons. People come to safety training with a whole host of pre-existing beliefs and attitudes. And also there's often not really an opportunity to apply safety training straight away when you get back to the workplace. So I think my answer is organizations aren't treating safety training special when it should be. It's something that's a bit unique and we have to have a distinct strategy to know how to implement it and transfer it back to the workplace. So basically, make sure I have it straight, mandatory, pre-existing beliefs, and and just not a lot of chances to be applying this stuff day to day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are some of the unintended consequences as a result of organizations not taking uh, safety training as seriously as they could be? Well, I think the biggest one is really just a reduced return on investment. So they may spend a lot of money on these bespoke or customized behavioral trainings or leadership safety trainings. And ultimately, if we don't have that science and that practical knowledge of how to make it transfer back to the workplace after the session's finished, after the classroom session has been completed, organizations are missing out on a really good opportunity to change or really realize the benefits from that investment. I think in addition to that, workers can become a bit cynical as well if they feel as though, well, we just went to this great training, but then there's no real follow-up. There's nothing really happening in the workplace after that. So that can maybe reinforce some of those pre-existing beliefs and attitudes that, well, safety is a tick the box. It's just a compliance exercise. So I think that's probably the two main reasons that come to mind for me. Yeah. I'm thinking back to some of the abysmally boring training sessions that I've been on historically, where it's like some bored HR rep or, or security person mm. out, out at front in, in the front of the room, reading sometimes just from like a binder or something like that. I'm, I'm just telling you what I've been through from time to time. Yeah. And you're going through this experience. And, and I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast right now has been through the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah you, you got the material and then 20 minutes later, it's all flushed out the door and it's like, was it useful? Well, like you said, with compliance, we checked the box, but mm. is that resulting in better outcomes in the organization? I don't know. Exactly. And I mean, that's the space that I really love to study is this sort of intersection between the, the learning experience and then the application back in the workplace. So how do we kind of optimize that relationship and get and get that investment happening, that return on investment happening? Right. Well, let's let's dive into that then. And then that's kind of what I'd like to transition to next is what exactly should organizations be doing? If I'm a security leader, I'm responsible for making sure that people are complying with maybe cyber issues or, or physical security risks. How would how would you advise me to revamp my safety program to make it more effective? 
Yeah, great question. I think it's really this three component idea of before, during and after the training. There's things we can do at each one of those time points. So before the training, uh, it's being mindful and, and perhaps having some data on what are those existing characteristics that trainees are going to turn up with to the training sessions. So you may uh, already be doing a, a safety culture or climate survey. You may already be doing some sort of data collection on your people as part of maybe a bigger engagement survey approach. And you can use that information to say, well, maybe there's some pre-training that we could get people to do so that they're more ready, they're more prepared when they get to that classroom experience, whether it be some of the content so we just focus on the practical skills and the more of interactive, engaging components in the classroom. Or you may have different sorts of streams of, of people coming to if they have maybe very entrenched, perhaps less positive safety beliefs and attitudes, they may have some additional modules they have to complete to, to make them ready for that training experience. So it's a whole host of things before. The, the, the sort of the during I divide into two, there's the delivery and there's the design. So you mentioned something before about the trainer, like trainer credibility is a really big thing in health and safety. We know that from the research. So if you have the wrong person delivering the training, that can really erode your efforts to create that change. And by the wrong person, perhaps you mentioned a couple of things there where they're maybe not using adult learning principles. They're not recognizing the fact that people arrive at the training room with their own experiences and they want to share that with other adults in the room. And then also, I guess, just whether that person has the right status and, and credibility and influence in the workforce. I mentioned design as well, which is part of the during. So design is about, well, let's maybe involve and collaborate with workers so that they have a good sense of what's going to be coming up in the training and have some buy-in and engagement already from the start. And let's fast forward to the end, that, that after the training, what do you do? Well, the biggest factor that shows the most return is supervisors taking an active interest in what people have learned during that classroom experience. So checking in, having conversations, holding people accountable, working with them on how they're going to use what they've just learned and giving them the time and space to actually practice. So in a nutshell, that's kind of a little tour of what I'd change or what I'd, what I'd optimize about a training session in the safety world. If you, if you could show up in the organization and wave the, the magic wand to, to fix everything overnight, that's the, the three-step blueprint. Yeah, I mean, maybe the only thing I've missed there is probably um, a good evaluation strategy because we know that just by measuring the outcomes of the training by and going beyond just the smile sheets and the reactions, but actually asking people three or six months later, what did you use? What barriers did you have? That measurement also stimulates the transfer, which has got some good research behind as well. All right, Tristan, I was I was feverishly taking down notes during the answer because there were <laughs> so many great nuggets of wisdom, and I'm just circling which ones do I want to go into next. Uh, one of the thought, questions I thought was really interesting, or one of the points that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting in the before stage was mm. the the beliefs that people might be bringing to these training sessions. And I'd be curious if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Can you elaborate a bit on, on what you mean by that? Yeah, certainly. So for example, the, 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 there's a lot of research done into different sorts of attitudes and beliefs that people have. So beliefs is like how the, your understanding of how the world works, whereas an attitude is more like a, an evaluation of whether something's good or bad. So a belief is a little bit more entrenched, a little bit more embedded. It's sort of how you interact with the world and the, the attitude is perhaps a little bit more tangible, uh, more malleable. So I mean, when I'm talking about those two things, people have attitudes about safety. They may say, well, safety is a waste of my time or no, it's about, I've had an incident myself, so I really buy into it. I think it's a really good use of my time. 
And of course, that will determine their readiness and engagement straight up in that session. If we're talking about beliefs, we're, we're sort of getting to the you know the real core of a person's psyche, and that's that's perhaps around. Well, if I do this training, what's likely to happen? Or so, sort of like different rules and and different understandings of how the world's going to function as a result of being involved in this training. So both those things together, the beliefs and the attitudes, create almost like a motivation to learn. So if, if someone arrives at a, at a safety training with a, perhaps a very negative mindset or negative framing around safety, that it is a compliance exercise, they're just going to maybe sit at the back of the room and not really get engaged in that learning. So we might want to try and change those attitudes and beliefs before, or, or at least challenge them you know gently it's probably ambitious to change them completely but at least provide some evidence that this is a different type of training it's interactive we involve people it's relevant to you and that all comes down to a really well-crafted communication strategy around that training package gotcha because i because like like you said i can just imagine if you have those negative beliefs and this is something i don't think a lot of organizations are thinking about when they are doing their check the box exercises of you know, what what are people actually thinking before they show up in the room? Because that's going to have a, like you said, a major impact in terms of whether or not they're going to be engaged during the learning process and implement what you say. I, yeah. I, I'm curious, digging in a little bit more too, is like what what are some of the recommendations that you have for how to how organizations can change those beliefs uh, once they've kind of identified where there might be some some roadblocks interrupting the process, the, the learning. Yeah. Process. I sort of touched on this before. There's a bunch of researchers that sort of say, well, it's kind of a futile effort to try and change these really entrenched ways of thinking. And to some extent, that's that's true. I mean, but but there are there are models, there are psychological theories that we can apply. One of them, which we call, it's a bit of a fancy name, the trans-theoretical model of change. And that really says that as people go through changing something about themselves, there'll be a distinct process they go through. There's a pre-contemplation phase. I don't know the need to change. They then move into a contemplation. Well, yes, I think this is a good idea, but I need more convincing. Then they move into the action and maintenance phase. Like I'm going to prepare, get ready, do it, that type of thing. So it's like a cycle. So, so at each one of those stages, there's distinct things we can do. So if you're talking about someone at a pre-contemplation phase, it's basically like there's no need to change. I've been doing safety the same way for 30 years. There's a few things we can do, and there's basic basic strategies awareness raising in terms of education about safety and maybe reframing it in a positive way. There's things like helping people to reevaluate their identity and say, well, as a, as a professional doing this job, safety is such an, a really crucial part of your, of your role as a professional. Help them to see that safety is part of what they do every day. So th- there's a handful of little things we can start to do. And, and, and I think the biggest, the biggest bang for buck is really just that, that sort of presenting evidence to the contrary to say that if you've got this particular belief that safety is all about compliance, well, let's let's present the evidence to say, well, no, safety is personal. It helps you get home safely. It helps the organization function, have continuous improvement. So really trying to build a strong case that this is something worthwhile doing. Yeah, I, I mean, just the examples that come to mind for me, when, when I think of like the best ads promoting safety awareness, and I'm just curious to hear your feedback on this idea, are the ones where you just see the, we've had some safety ads going around Canada of, you're just a, a person not coming home from the workplace. And it kind of, mm-hmm. it's that emotional gut response versus, like you say, a compliance exercise. So I, I, I is that, it, would that be something that you think or, or would be effective or? Uh, yeah, that's, like that's one, one, one strategy. We, we, but the, I mean, for me, those types of ads really, like on the one hand, they're effective because it does 
sort of stimulate this thing around, well, safety is a personal, it has a personal value to me as it's about getting home to my family and friends and the things I love. But I guess the implicit assumption there is that, well, workers just need to care more about safety to, to improve safety outcomes. So I, I think that plus something which is perhaps more around the organizational benefits or just that kind of integration of business with, uh, business with safety is, 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 should be supplemented with something a little bit more deeper, I think. Not, yeah. to not to not sort of say that it's, it's all the workers' problem. They need to they need to they need to care more. They need to have better better ways of thinking. Gotcha. I want to work on now. We we talked about the before before the training session. Now I want to yeah. talk about the the during part. And there's there's so many notes that I have here. I don't think we'll get into all of them during this podcast. But the other one that I really clued into that I thought was interesting was the credibility of the person delivering the training materials. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So there's a couple of uh, research articles that have been published recently about this. So in terms of credibility, it's, it's, it's I guess, who's the person delivering the training? Is it perhaps the compliance officer that really has had no training themselves in facilitation and, and, and delivery? So there's that sort of skill set they have, but also perhaps what is the reputation or credibility of, of, the, of the trainer in their role. So so if safety in an organization is seen as very much like a, a traditional stereotypical police mentality of I'm going to come in and help make everyone comply, if that person then got up and started talking about safety culture and leadership, maybe that wouldn't be the best individual to deliver that that session. So so there's I guess there's two parts to it is 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 sort of the credibility around can the person do that actual facilitation and have the really good interaction engagement with people. And are they also someone that's seen on the, on the site within the culture of the organization as, uh, as an influential and trustworthy person? Yeah. That, that's a really interesting insight, Tristan, because I'm, I'm kind of imagining like, like with a lot of safety things, a lot of our listeners not might be thinking of themselves, might be responsible for implementing a lot of these safety trainings and mm. might then automatically go say, okay, we're the department that should be actually delivering this training material. Whereas... If, I, if I'm getting straight, what, what you're talking about is doing a critical evaluation and thinking about the audience of like, okay, well, how are they going to see us? Because security can sometimes be seen as the company flashlight cops. It's not necessarily true, but that might be how people outside of the department see it. And so for that reason, might not, if, if your goal is to actually get people to engage with the learning materials to critically evaluate, are, are we the best people to be delivering this material to the particular audience that we're talking to? Well, yeah. And one of the ways you can get around that that works really well is co-facilitation. So where you have that, that technical person, but then you have an operations person helping you to leverage their credibility and their influence in that session. So they may be able to give good examples. They can relate to the folks in the room. Um, so co-facilitation is a way to get around some of those barriers. That's a really interesting idea. Have the HR person or the the security person yeah. that's required to be up there, and then someone from the group that yeah. uh, is respected within within the organization. I, I, that's a, that's an outstanding takeaway. Going on now to to point number three, and like there were so many points that we could dive into. I'm just I'm just diving into the few of the ones that mm. that piqued my interest. The first, can you tell me a little bit more about the evaluation process? Why that's important, and then how how to go about doing that to to measure. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's great. So, I mean, traditionally, training gets a little bit of a bad rap because we have the smile sheets. We have, did you enjoy this training? Would you recommend it to others? Those types of questions. 
not saying they're all bad. I mean, it, it is it is a good piece of data, but we need to go beyond that. And we talk about uh, the good old Kirkpatrick model is one of the models that gets used a lot, and, and it's it's very good. So they talk about reactions, learning, behavior, and results as the four levels of evaluation. So if we're designing a really good training evaluation, we need to tap into all four levels. Reactions means, did I find this useful for my job? Will I apply it when I get back into the workplace? Those types of questions which go beyond just, did I enjoy it? Because we know that the prediction, like the, the relationship between enjoyment and transfer or outcomes is very low. But reactions, did I find it relevant, useful, is it going to help me in my job? That, that's a, got a much stronger relationship. So they're the better questions to use. Uh, learning. So we can divide learning into the, the, the sort of the knowledge, the skill, and also the what we call the effective, uh, affective or sort of emotional learning. And that can be like self-confidence, different changes in attitudes as a result of that, that, that training. So again, we can divide the learning into different categories. Behavior, did they actually use it? That's pretty easy to measure. You just check in at one, three, six months, maybe even 12 months and see the long-term sustainability of the change. And results is maybe where we fall down a little bit with evaluation. We don't often check, well, given this training, given the kinds of things that we've learned uh, or the participants have learned, what should change in the organization? And I would caution against using lost time injuries or other like negative measures of safety as a, as a results variable because they occur infrequently they're hard to measure change they're basically random fluctuations so when i say results i've been saying things like well did the safety culture change did the climate change did the the perceptions of management safety commitment change lots of different things we can start to measure as a as a sort of a result outcome how, how would you measure the the result outcome in like something like a cultural change would it just be like, like you said, like a survey result that comes back from these, or would there be like well, a specific question you'd be asking periodically? Yeah, I, I think when you're talking about culture, that's a really tricky thing to measure. Typically, the best practice gold standard would be qualitative, so actually talking to people and gathering commentary and notes and things. But that can be very expensive and difficult when you're just evaluating a training program. If you can do it, great. But otherwise, use something called the safety climate survey, which is a validated concept. It's a a set of questions that are publicly available. You can find lots of safety climate surveys and they actually give us a quantitative indicator of, well, how healthy is our culture? It's kind of a snapshot of the underlying culture. What surprised you during the course of your research? Hmm. I think just the fact that there's been a lot of research done on augmented and virtual reality, particularly in the mining sector. So, I mean, these technologies are still fairly new and immature, but it seems to be applied, at least initially, in that kind of immersive sort of mining context where they want people to be exposed to hazards and be that be kind of really high fidelity, but not actually be in that environment. So I think I think for certain contexts, VR and augmented reality are really good, but maybe just caution against it being used to blanket like, oh, it's the newest thing. Let's just get on get onto this trend think carefully about whether it's the right kind of the tool for your for your training context. Interesting, interesting. So like I've I've done a few I've I've had the the VR headsets for for a couple of training things at like the PDAC mining conference and I and I saw some of the got to go through the exercises and and see that and it was mind-blowing. It was very very cool. So if if I'm making sure I got what you said correctly, but in terms of whether or not we're seeing great results from the AR and VR thing, it's a little unclear at this point. 
It's a little premature, yeah. I, I think that there's been a lot of initial studies, but they're kind of like the quality is not that great. It's it's maybe more of an engineering or technical focus about the technology rather than the actual is this promoting training transfer and, and results. So I think there needs to be a, a bit more collaboration between people like me, the organizational psychologists and the technology folks that are actually implementing this stuff. Gotcha. If you were to put on your, your prediction hat, are you optimistic on, on ARVR tech or, or pessimistic? How, how do you think that's going to play out? Yeah, no, I think I'm, I think I'm optimistic. I think that as long as it's not overused and, and sort of used in a blanket way, that this is more of a novelty rather than having a really clear connection to, to, the, to the training content. I think that's, that's helpful. I, I think with, with the rise of chat GPT and AI, we, we might start to see some really fascinating applications where you've got more ability to role play using VR, perhaps like more of an emotional sort of social interaction training. That might be a really interesting development we see come to fruition. Yeah, I'm going to be very curious to see how ChatGPT plays out with this. I I was chatting with my my partner's fiance who has a startup in with with some training training software. And what was really cool, and I, I'm just telling you that I want to hear your feedback. I'm just curious what you think of it. Whereas you know you'd have these forms where you had to fill out potential safety risks. And mm. ChatGPT allowed you to kind of like brainstorm some of the ideas. I don't know if that just make it fill in the blank, but <laughs> to to kind of picture what what some of these things might be, and it, it was a pretty interesting application. So I'll be I'll be kind of curious where the AI. There's so many different applications we've had on we've talked about on the show with cybersecurity risks and mm. marketing business, how it changes business, and now safety training and, and things like that. Like where it's going to end up getting tangled up, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think there's a whole ethical debate around this. It should should AI be used? It's it it sort of the distinction between like using it to take things away from people or or de-skill them or, or sort of cheat, or is it used to enhance, augment, kind of really enable the human experience to be even better? So if I'm using it to cheat on an exam, maybe that's not the best use. But if I'm using it to like review an article I'm going to post on LinkedIn, and make it enhance the language and and, and enhance sort of the, the the clarity. Then that's maybe a good use of it. I'm not sure, but we'll see. What what other kind of technology applications have you seen that have really improved safety training? Ah, good question. Technology applications. I think there's there's one collaboration I'm doing at the moment, which is about wearable devices, and and that particular company is getting a lot of good results where. Basically, the wearables are giving people continuous behavioral feedback about whether they're using good manual handling, good posture, those types of things as they do their warehousing and other physical tasks. So I think that combination of doing something in a classroom and then having this kind of feedback plus a supervisor supporting that as well, it's a really powerful booster of of training transfer. That's an interesting answer. This conversation went the opposite of how I thought it was going to go before I went in. I thought the AR VR thing was going to be a bigger deal. And then I hadn't uh, even considered considered the wearables. So I was, but I, but I could see that, like you said, it's the continuous feedback that you're able to mm-hmm. get over time, which is important for, for like you were saying in, in a previously, if you, if you're just getting the training and nothing else, it's going to disappear after, after a certain amount of time. Right. But yeah. if you get the wearables, boom, that's, that's feeding you the data all the time for feedback. That, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, I mean, the, the wearables really take that training out of the classroom and, and encourage people to use it you know, right away as soon as they get out. Are there any other tips that you have for, for companies for reinforcing that training? Because like going back to 
like you said earlier, I'm thinking three months, six months, nine months down the road. I, I can definitely see that as an area where a lot of organizations are falling down. So I'd just be curious what other kind of advice you'd have for that. Yeah, I think that's really speaking to this this challenge of embedding and sustainability. So uh, like you, you point out a really big problem is that we have the flash in the pan, really great training experience, but then nothing happens afterwards. People go back to their jobs, supervisors get distracted with their day day to day, and um, we, we sort of lose momentum on that training. So I think the key is really about integrating training concepts within organizational systems and policies. So when it comes to safety, uh, it can be something as simple as maybe redesigning a risk assessment uh, tool so that it's actually using some of the language from the training or encouraging people to apply maybe a new methodology or something in that in that tool. So it's like looking at your safety management system, looking at all the practices you're doing, and then linking the training really explicitly to, to the skills that you're, that, you're, that you're training against. One example comes to mind from a, a mining organization, again, uh, an explosives manufacturer, who we, we built some safety leadership training with them. And they basically, what, what we did was we integrated a whole host of safety activities that their supervisors do into the training session. So one of them was job cycle checks. So go, the supervisor's going out and basically checking that the, 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 the controls have been implemented, that type of thing. So that was a, that was one of the scenarios we, we trained heavily against in the program so that it becomes business as usual. You're kind of training for embedding as you go through. Gotcha. All right, Tristan, we're coming up on all the time that I promised to steal from you today. What's the one takeaway you want our listeners to remember? Yeah, I, I think it's this point that many, many safety trainings and even training in general just, just fails to result in, in actual change. There's been some figures raised like, you know, as little as 10% gets transferred. That, that's a bit of a myth, but it is, it's not 100%, that's for sure. So I think for all businesses, it's about recognize the training transfer problem, use science, use this, this practical science that we've been developing to try and make a difference and actually make sure that people use what you've what you've invested in with them and actually use it back there on the job. All right. And if people want to learn more about your work, how can they get in touch? Yeah, sure. So you can jump on LinkedIn. I'm there, Tristan Casey, or you can go to Newview Safety, the newview.com.au, and you can connect with us there. And we have some cool safety training there that's definitely designed for transfer. So you can check that out too. Dr. Tristan Casey, thanks again for being on the show. You're welcome, Rob. Thanks. Again, that was Dr. Tristan Casey, Director of New View Safety. Thanks for listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, sponsored by LifeRap. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to these episodes. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, be sure to check out our resource page at liferaftinc.com slash blog. That's liferaftinc.com slash blog. And I hope you tune in next time.